This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to one of two servings of Sunday Chops, you lucky smasher. Over on the other one, Hannah is having a cracking chat about the history, or rather her story, of working mums with Dr Helen McCarthy, historian and author of new book, Double Lives. I've had a listen and it is properly fascinating. They cover a lot, including how society and feminism have viewed mums and work, and how working mums have viewed themselves. Also, given we're in the midst of the worst crisis in childcare and living memory, they ask what the future may hold for women who want to have kids and careers. Speaking of which, it would be very remiss of me not to giddily shout, Jen's had a baby at this point. We are, of course, utterly delighted. Jen is smitten with little L-Dog and both mother and daughter are safe and well. Until cheap bitey Auntie Hannah gets a look in, but more on that over on Hannah's Chops. As for this one, it is the full chat I had with Penny Windsor, two-time carer, single mum and author of The Eye-Opening Tender, The Imperfect Art of Caring. You may well have heard a bit of mine and Penny's natter on this week's pod, where we covered the loaded nature of the term carer, how disabled people have been thrown under the bus and the absolute pittance unpaid carers receive in the UK. Here, we're also covering the unique intersection of disability and boy oh boy, is that an eye-opener too the medical versus social model of dealing with disability and the importance of individual stories in helping us understand what needs to be done to make lives better for disabled people and those looking after and supporting them. I am joined on the phone by Penny Windsor, author of Tender, The Imperfect Art of Caring. Hello, Penny. Hello. So it turns out carer is both a simple and yet incredibly complicated word. I'm going in with a big question. You've written a whole book about it. But what does it mean (laughs) to be a carer? Oh, gosh, this is so interesting. When I first started writing the book, actually, I think when I decided to write the book about carers, I hadn't even quite realised just how loaded that term was Mm -hmm. as well. I think as a parent looking after a disabled child, I was quite comfortable with the word carer, but I know not everybody is. And in fact, when I I approached a lot of people cold to interview for the book who didn't know me, and a number of people emailed back and went, I don't understand. I don't don't think I am a carer. And so I'd say, oh, are you supporting your partner or your child? And, and, you know, I thought that maybe because I'd heard you written about it before. And they're like, oh, yeah, I do, but I'm not a carer. And that was really interesting to me. I spoke about it with Dr. Francis Ryan, who's a journalist who works for The Guardian and has written about this as well. I think the problem with the word carer is is it implies a unidirectional support, as if it's a one-way relationship. And obviously that's actually not how it is in in reality. No relationships are one way. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of people are uncomfortable for that reason. And, you know, another person pointed out that it just, for her, it brought up this idea that a victim and rescuer which again, it's really not how it is at all and not how she wanted to see her relationship with the person she supported. Part of me, I think, wanted to reclaim the word a little bit because it is very nuanced. It means a lot to different people. And I think in a way we're ashamed of the word sometimes, in the way that we're ashamed of talking about disability. To be a paid or unpaid carer at the moment is still you know, a very kind of lowly position to have in society. And I think 
that's partly because we have a really quite terrible view of disability. Yes. So, you know, to be disabled, you have a low position in society. And then to then support someone who's disabled, you're kind of put in that same category. And I think that is a lot of people's discomfort with the word as well. Yeah, and you've touched on it there. The pandemic has shone a start light on a lot of societal problems, but not least that we live in a deeply ableist society. So I know you can't speak for everyone, but how has the current situation with coronavirus and lockdown affected carers? What what has the cost been? I've actually got back in touch with a number of people I interviewed for the book to check in on them and see how they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it's very varied. Some people still have the same support they had before. And obviously their lives have changed like everybody and it's more stressful. But, you know, they're doing OK. I've spoken to a number of people who've lost everything. And they're now inside in a house 24-7 supporting somebody else with no support, none at all. Uh, No school, no paid respite, uh, no overnight respite, which they used to have before. And these are people looking after somebody who have very high needs. And, of course, they do want to be the person looking after them because Mm -hmm. they don't want to not be looking after them. But it's really very challenging to support someone else's high needs 24 hours a day without breaks. And there there are a lot of people in this country doing that at the moment. In our particular situation, my son had almost five weeks off school for self-isolating and then the Easter holidays, and that was incredibly challenging. But luckily, his school had remained open. And in fact, actually, his school has been fantastic. And they've, they've had the most students of almost any school in the country. They really know that their students need it. And so since he went back after Easter, we've had a really, like, really a lot of support compared to most families because of school. But even then, without um, my other usual respites and things, it has been really, really challenging. Um, and what I've had, actually, is more than most people. And that's not just because I need the kind of breaks. Uh, my son needs structure, and school provides that structure. So the six hours he spends there, it makes the 24 hours better. I mean, literally every bit of it better. He sleeps better, he's happier, he's calmer, he's more regulated. So the knock-on effect of having some support is really phenomenally huge. And there are a lot of people out there who have nothing at the moment. Okay, let's talk cold, hard cash. Disabled people have absolutely been thrown under the bus in this country, and that means that their carers have too. It's staggering to me that wanting to look after each other is looked down upon. But carers' allowance peaks peaks at a a wonderful £66 per week. Mm, All that lovely money. Um, It's a joke. Can you tell us what is expected for that £66 a week and how hard it is to actually get anything extra, even though it is vital for both people involved? It is so shocking. And, And people, I've mentioned this a number of times, and people don't have no idea how low the allowance is. So first of all, it's it's a taxable income. Second of all, um, you <laughs> Sorry. are allowed to... Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, of course, laughable, right? It's £30 lower than um, job seekers' allowance, I think. Yeah. You know, which seems just, inc- like, just ridiculous to me that it should not be at least in line with job seekers' allowance. And that's actually what the call is at the moment. There's a lot of charities calling for that to change right now, absolutely right now. They've been calling for it for a long time. But, you know, obviously in the middle of the crisis, it's more important than ever. You can do a small amount of work. I can't remember the exact threshold. I think it's up to £110 a week that you're allowed to earn outside of the house. But that is way too low. Most people don't bother because they can't find the right amount of work that fits within the threshold of what you can earn. Mm-hmm. So there's also a call for the, the threshold of what you can earn on top of that to be increased as well. There are people out there right now who are caring 24-7 for somebody for £66 a week. 24-7. Um, 
And then if you add to that, of course, it's it's very expensive to be disabled. It's very expensive. I yeah. think it's something like an extra £550 a month to be disabled in this country. Um, and that's partly because you'll need specialist equipment, which isn't covered by the NHS. Um, you might need to adapt your home. You might have to, say, have higher utility bills because you're spending all your time in the house and you might need to have a heat at a certain te- you know, temperature. Or there's, a, there's a myriad of reasons why you uh, might have um, much higher expenses as a disabled person. So really, it's doubly shocking that a carer would only be given that much money per week. Because that's to look after at least two people, because obviously there's a lot of families who have a disabled family member. And I think it says in your book, the stats there is that 30% of families living with a disabled family member are living in poverty. Yeah, it is. It's it's very, very high. I think being having a disabled family member is one of the highest predictors of poverty. And I think something like one in six disabled children, I think, are living in poverty. One in four are going without essential specialist equipment. And then you intersect that with race and the stats get even more upsetting. Yeah, I think that's the thing that that is so unique about disability is that, you know, you can have every other intersection and identity and also be disabled. So, you know, being white and disabled is definitely a lot easier than being black and disabled. Um, And there's, you know, obviously a lot of reasons why that is. Not least of which, you know, I've got friends who have children the same age as my son who are black and they have to worry about when they're in public. My son can behave really unexpectedly and he can make a lot of noise and he can move in a jerky way and not behave in a way that people would expect a 10-year-old to behave. He's not white, but he's very light. And it's really different for us to experience that, especially as me as a white mother taking my son out and having and him having a meltdown in the street to um, my friend who's black and she takes her black son out and she's actually experienced violence in the street because her son didn't behave in a way that people thought was appropriate. Black people who are disabled as well are doubly fucked. We need to talk about this. Well, also a black American disabled activist that I follow on Twitter and Instagram, Imani Barberin. Her handle is Crutches and Spice. She pointed out that around half of all um, fatalities in police custody that are to do with race are also disabled people half and that's often because disabled people aren't able to respond in the way police expect i haven't found where that original statistic comes from but if she's saying it i'm sure absolutely sure she's got the reference for it because she doesn't spout crap a lot of deaf black men have been have been killed because they don't respond a lot of autistic and learning disabled people have been killed because they're not, again, because they can't respond in the way that police expect. There's a whole other level of danger to being black and autistic in America than, and well, here as well, but, but I mean, it's interesting. Like when I've t- talked to my friend about it, she's definitely worries much more about her son than I have to worry about my son. I think it's a really important intersection in terms of what it means to be both black and disabled because I think a lot of black disabled people feel left out of both the disability movement and the Black Lives Matter movement because the the crossover of those two are so challenging and people don't really want to hear it because I think when you're black and you've got so much institutional racism, you don't really want to hear about how disability is really bad as well. You say in the book that disabled people are the bottom of every pile. And it's a silly word to use, but I can't think of a better word right now. But it's it's almost like it's not sexy enough. That's why it doesn't get the attention it so deserves. Yeah, no, I, I can see why you put it that way. It's really 
it's really shocking, I think, because as soon as you start digging, you sort of start to realize, well, hang on, why aren't we talking about it? Why? Mm-hmm. It affects it affects 20% of the world population. <laughs> and and then, of course, even more people in terms of within families. And it is, it is really shocking that we don't talk about it. But they are all very, you know, all of the different civil rights movements are very interconnected. And I don't think we can talk about one without the other. I, I think they are very interconnected. One example is that during the Second World War, obviously a lot of disabled people were, were also murdered. Yeah. But at the time, nobody cared. Nobody on any side really cared that disabled people were being murdered. The eugenics movement was obviously very popular here in this country for quite a long time before the Second World War. It did luckily sort of peter out a bit, thank God. But, you know, it's coming back. There is still very much a kind of underlying eugenics ideas that are very acceptably talked about openly in society. And, you know, that that comes in the form of, you know, a lot of online abuse for disabled people. I think they are amongst the highest abused group online. And these ideas, they, they keep coming up and they keep coming up and they're not always called out by people. And I think within the medical profession now, I'm very hopeful that this has changed enormously. But my grandma had rheumatoid arthritis and she was bedridden from when I was about three. And so she was crippled and her legs were permanently in a, sort of as if she had her knees up towards her, which so like she was sitting all the time. Mm-hmm. And the hospital, what they offered was that they could they could just break her knees so at least her legs would be straight. And th- that as an offer is just baffling. But of course, then she'd look sort of more normal in inverted commas. Yeah, I think this is what's so interesting about about looking at disability through these two different models, the medical model and the social model. And the medical model is how most of us understand disability. It's how most of our kind of mainstream discourse is around disability, which is that disability is wrong and needs to be fixed Mm. and you need to make yourself as normal as possible. Whereas the social model is that you're disabled and what needs to happen is society needs to adjust to make the world more accessible for you Um, because not all disabilities are fixable. You know, we we kind of like to think that in in this day and age we can just fix everything. I think this virus has proved to us, (laughs) reminded us uh, that we are only human and and we do die and and things do go wrong. It's almost like we've been lulled into this this sense that we we can fix anything and therefore we should. But, you know, some disabilities are permanent and they might be life changing, but they're not life ending. You know, if we can um, look at someone who has a spinal injury and say the problem is not your wheelchair, the problem is that you can't get into this building because nobody thought to put a ramp there. Mm-hmm. Somebody put a ramp in the front but didn't think to make the doors inside wide enough for you to get into every room in there. We need to start thinking about disability from the social model. It's not good enough to just think we need to fix that person. We need to fix that problem. What we need to do is to make our whole society just accessible to everyone, whatever that person's needs are. And most people would come back and say, well, that's just too difficult. Well, actually, it's not too difficult. Everyone can use a ramp. You know, people who have working legs can use a ramp. It's not that big a deal. That's why we need to change our thinking a little bit from from medical things that need to be fixed to a social model where, yes, there's there's an impairment or there's a disability or there's an illness, and that's not always easy and it's very challenging. But, you know, here's the ways we can make it less challenging. And here's the ways in which we can all still participate in society. I think people find it easier to do the sympathy head tilt, to feel sorry, to not think about disability rights, because it can happen to us today, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yes. This is the other reason why I think people are really scared about talking about disability, because like death, it could, I mean, obviously death is absolutely 100% inevitable. 
but disability is so it could happen it could so easily happen and that is terrifying for people mm-hmm. absolutely terrifying yeah I and mean, then this is what makes it unique as an intersection a lot of the other intersections we're kind of born into you know class race gender and sexuality and things like that you know people tend to be like well this is the way i'm born whereas disability i mean it could ha- you could be born with a disability you could acquire one it could happen literally at any time and it makes it a very different conversation Hello there, listener. Jen here to ask you a little favour, if I may. If you're not doing so already, you can follow us on all of the social medias. Well, not all of them because we're old and we don't know what all of them do. But on Twitter, we are at Standard Issue UK. On Facebook, we are Standard Issue Magazine. And on Instagram, where it would be particularly helpful if you would follow us, we are at Standard Issue Podcast. Also on Twitter, you will find me at Inspira Jen, Mickey at Mixter Noonan and Hannah at That Dunleavy. Ah, go on, give us a follow. The brilliant Sophie Walker says that advocating for her autistic daughter not only made her a carer, but also made her an activist. Do you think that most carers become activists in one way or another? I think when anyone is faced with a situation where they suddenly realise that somebody they love is now in a position that's considered, I guess, as less than by society, it is a real wake-up call. I think with me, when my son was first diagnosed when he was three, I I wasn't actually really afraid of the word autism. Um, I found it really interesting and I was quite interested to learn more and and fascinated to do reading about it and stuff. And he was also such an interesting little boy, even though his his needs were very, very high. But I was, was, I'll be honest, I was really afraid that he would have um, moderate to severe learning difficulties. I was afraid. It's not easy to admit that now, to say that you're afraid of that. And I know now, because I've been (laughs) doing a lot of thinking and reading and trying to work out where those feelings come from. And those feelings come from our society. You know, they come from a society who just ignores people with learning disabilities, leaves them out of every conversation, completely, completely in the shadows. You know, when the leader report came out last year, which was looking into the mortality rates of adults with learning disabilities, I learned that my son will very likely die 25 years before his peers of a preventable cause because he has a learning disability. And you know what? Nobody cares. Hardly anyone reported on it. You know, the government didn't even respond to it, even though it was initially commissioned by them. It was, it's so shocking. And it's even more shocking to kind of see nobody really caring. And I think, um, I think that, that when you become a carer, you have to start unpacking some of these feelings. You really, really do. Like if you can't confront some of those ableist ideas that you had inside you, you know, that I think actually all of us have inside us. We've all grown up in the same society. Yeah. That, um, that treats disability like it's, you know, the worst thing in the world. I think we really have to learn to understand that because we can't, we can't look after the person we love properly if we still hold these ideas inside us, if we don't question them. And we can't be happy with our lot in life unless we confront them. I've had a number of people send me messages over the last couple of years as I've been a bit more vocal on Instagram about caring, have sent me messages privately saying, I really want to come to a place where I accept my child's severe disability. I really want to, but I'm still sad about it all the time. Yeah. And that's so understandable. The sadness is, is incredibly understandable because 
our children are facing a lot of challenges. My son will have a more challenging life than my daughter because he will always be up against it. There will always be something that he will be fighting against. And even it's just something as much as, you know, he can't tell me when he's in pain. Mm -hmm. And that's a really, you know, it's a really scary thing to think that something could happen and he can't explain to me how he feels and we might miss something. But at the same time, we need to really understand where a lot of the sadness comes from. And a lot of it is societal. A lot of it is sort of us being surrounded by a society that puts productivity ahead of anything else and kind of um, outward achievements ahead of anything else. You know, I've even had um, people say to me that, that, that they assume I don't have very high expectations for my son's life and that he's going to have a not very good life. And I just think that's just rubbish. It's complete rubbish. He's going to have a different life. You know, he probably won't be fully independent. I don't know what his future is going to look like, and I'm very open-minded about what it does look like. I'm not going to fixate on it looking a certain way because I have no idea. Um, He's constantly surprising me, so I don't know what it's going to look like. (laughs) But um, it is essential to let go of our very fixed ideas about what life should look like if we're going to be happy as carers. Well, it's there in the second part of the title of your book, isn't it? The Imperfect Art of Caring. And there's a lot of pressure, which you've just sort of mentioned there, internal and external, put on carers Mm. to be absolutely perfect. Yeah, and I I really, I found that particularly with parent carers, because I think, and particularly with mothers, I think, you know, we all know how much pressure mothers are put under now, I think, within society, that somehow anything that our child does or doesn't do is somehow our fault. And I think it just kind of goes to a bit of an extreme when it comes to raising a disabled child, because first of all, like you don't really get very much support. So as a mother, you have to become the expert and that's so much pressure. You know, Mm -hmm. people would constantly say to me when he was really young in meetings, well, you're the one who knows Arthur best. So what do you think? And although of course that sentiment is great, that pressure I felt was intense because although I knew my son better than anyone, it was terrifying to think that I, who really couldn't discern a lot of his behavior and a lot of what he was trying to communicate to me, the idea that I was the one who knew best was terrifying actually Yeah. because I really didn't think I was meeting his needs properly. I often wasn't because I didn't understand his needs. And obviously that's improved quite a lot over time, but we still have times where he's having such a stressful time and I just can't get to the bottom of what it is that he's trying to communicate and he can't communicate to me. To be the one that everyone looks to in the room to have all the answers is really scary. What would you like readers to take from Tender? I think the main couple of things really are, please listen to, to disabled people. You know, when, when somebody you love has a new diagnosis, and especially when they can't explain it themselves, what their experience is for whatever reason, turn to other disabled people to find out what that experience might be like. For me, that turning point was really reading the writing of non-speaking autistics and really understanding on a deep level what it's like to be in a body that people treat as if, well, in one way, Barb Rentabach, who's an author I really love, described as she gets treated as a poor thinker because she can't speak. So for me, it was reading work like that that really helped me understand my son's experience. So I'd say that would be a huge outcome. If I could get more people looking to disabled people, that would be really wonderful. Um, And the other thing which I think is so, so incredibly vital is that we need to have self-compassion as carers. We need to be gentle with ourselves because I think what we're doing is difficult. It's not easy. It's really challenging. It's really challenging in a really ongoing way. I mean, I'm going to be a carer for the rest of my life and I have to be gentle with myself 
because my son is always going to need me. And I know that's not the case for a lot of carers. Some carers are sadly facing quite a short period of caring because the person they're supporting won't be around for long. And that requires a lot of self-compassion for other reasons. But I would say, you know, if we can learn to be gentle with ourselves, and I think that really means accepting the feelings that come up, maybe not always shouting about them publicly (laughs) necessarily because that might not be appropriate for the person that you support, but accepting the feelings that come up and then treating yourself as if you would a friend. And that's, I think, the, I find the easiest way to think about it. If I think about if I am having a really hard time during one of my son's meltdowns, my first instinct is I'm not allowed to be kind to myself because Arthur needs, needs my kindness right now. I don't deserve to have compassion. He deserves it. And I think it took me a while to realize that actually there's enough compassion for both of us in this moment. There's enough compassion for me to have some for myself and for me to have it for my son who's really struggling as well. So I really hope that's a message that comes across in the book. I think with that, we need that societal change so that we'd, for our attitudes towards disabled people and towards carers, which would then hopefully make it easier to get the help that you need for your needs and therefore give you the space to be able to show yourself that kindness because 24-7 doesn't leave a lot of room for you, does it? <laughs> really doesn't and I'm very fortunate obviously I'm talking to you right now I wouldn't probably be able to have this conversation if Arthur was here because he's so noisy <laughs> but he's <laughs> at school right now but um but yeah I mean this is the thing I think so many people right now are in very intense situations and there is going to be a crisis because of it I mean you know this the crisis is not going to be over the crisis is just going to be beginning in terms of the, the health and well-being of disabled people and carers after this main crisis of the pandemic is over already too much is expected of unpaid carers I think Unpaid carers say social services around £132 billion a year. That's in normal circumstances. Wow. Normal circumstances. Right now, I mean, I can't even tell you what carers are doing. You you can imagine what carers are doing right now who have lost everything. I'm so pleased that paid carers are finally getting some recognition that they deserve. It's so wonderful to see that people are actually respecting the profession of nursing Um, right now and paramedics and care home workers I would say as well you know there is a whole army of unpaid carers in this country who are propping up the NHS and social services and the NHS would collapse without them it would collapse and I think it's time to give them the support that they need because the thing is I want to do this caring I want to look after my son I don't want anyone else to look after my son you know I want to be able to do it long term I really really do but I can't do it alone and I think that's that's the message I received from, from all of the carers I spoke to. None of them said to me, and I'm sure some people do feel this way, but most I think most carers don't. None of them said to me, I wish I, I didn't have to do this at all. I don't want to do any of it. Most of them said to me, I want to be the person supporting my loved one, but I need more help. And I need more help to keep doing it for the long term. And I think that's the really important thing to remember. Like everything in life, if we just go after the short-term money-saving things, the consequences can be catastrophic long-term. Yeah, totally. Do you think that coronavirus will have had a positive change on how we value unpaid carers? I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I think, you know, when I sat down to write this book, you know, if I had known what we would be going through when I was putting the book out and promoting it, I mean, I just, I wouldn't have believed it was possible. Honestly, I would not have believed it was physically possible for the people, for myself, for the people that I spoke to, to be doing what we're doing right now. 
And I think this is why stories are so important. It was what was the driver behind the book in the first place, is that we need to understand the stories of unpaid carers because so many people do it. So many people are completely isolated doing it, not realizing just how many people out there are doing exactly the same thing as them. And, you know, I was also a young carer when I was a teenager and I had no idea that's what I was doing. And I think that's also the other reason these stories are really important. There are so many people who don't even identify as carers. If you look at the data, most people identify as carers when they're falling apart, when they're having a breakdown, when they're hospitalized from exhaustion. You know, it takes that long to identify as a carer often because, of course, supporting somebody you love is natural. It's completely natural. And, of course, if those... um, increases in care are very incremental and happen over a long period of time it might take you a really long time to recognize just how much you're doing so that means that people aren't necessarily getting the support that they need this is why the numbers around unpaid carers are a little bit woolly and unknown because so many people don't identify as one so i think the 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 number is um around seven million in the uk at any one time but they think it's probably possibly more like nine million because um, they're not really sure. I don't even know, for instance, if I would be counted as a carer because I, I work full time. So I don't um, I don't receive a carer's allowance. So I'm not sure if anyone has any kind of record of me. I mean, obviously, I think there's only about one and a half million people in this country on carer's allowance. But I'm not sure how they get to those numbers. So it would be interesting to see whether even someone like me who um, I mean, I think my the hours I spend caring per week, if you break it down, is probably everything less than 32 hours of school. So whatever that number is. So it's a lot. Tender is available in all good bookshops, yes? Yes, from the 11th of June. It's available everywhere. I believe there's also going to be an audible version if that's more accessible to people as well. Penny, thank you so, so much for chatting to me about this. Thank you so much for having me. Standard Issue for All Women.